Hello, everyone. You're listening to the DSG Connect podcast. As one of the world's leading dental laboratory networks, we value connection. And in alignment with that value, the DSG Connect podcast is here to serve you. Our goal is to elevate voices in dentistry. You know the ones, world changers, innovators, disruptors, true leaders, the people making a difference and bringing world-class solutions to our industry and communities. Our guests will educate, inspire, and share what is working, how to pivot when things go sideways, and everything in between. Wherever you find yourself listening, thank you. Industry experts, a glimpse into the future is an exciting collection of talks with the most innovative thinkers in our industry. They'll be asked and will address some of the most challenging points of inflection of our time post-COVID and look forward to their, not only their perspective, but some of the solutions they see on the horizon. This will be thought-provoking, encouraging, challenging at times, but certainly expanding our mind and our perspective of what can be in such a great industry that we're all privileged to serve within. I'm excited to introduce this series of talks and really feel privileged that we could deliver this to you today. Hello, everyone. Heidi here with DSG Connect Podcast, and I am so excited today to have Dr. Jahangiri on with me. I know many of you are familiar with her, but I'd like to give a little bit of a background. She graduated in 1991 with her BDS dentistry from King's College University of London, then earned her specialty certificate in prosthodontics, Harvard School of Medicine in 1995, also earned a Master's of Medical Sciences, Molecular Biology in 1995 at Harvard University as well, and her DMD from Harvard School of Dental Medicine in 1997. She is currently Ira E. Klein Professor and Chair, Department of Prosthodontics at NYU, and Dr. John Hanjeri is an active member and fellow of numerous organizations, lecturer, mentor, author, and so much more. Thank you for coming on and joining us today. I'm very appreciative, uh, Heidi, for having me on. I hope that I can provide some insight for those that are listening or viewing this podcast. Absolutely. What we're talking about today is just kind of getting a glimpse into the future, where we've been through this COVID crisis, and then kind of peeking around the corner and seeing where we're going. You are an educational innovator and head of the largest dental university in the United States. How did you all navigate through the crisis kind of at its peak in New York? So we went remote middle of March And no one anticipated whether this remote status was going to be a week, a month, or several months. I don't quite know what force came to my head, but the day after we went remote, I sent a memo to all the department's uh, faculty, which are about 90 faculty and staff, and sort of delineated several projects. Now, I had no idea... Um, You know, I didn't sit down, come up with a vision, do things in a very formal way. But in those projects, I assigned um, sort of a little bit of a non-traditional leader in each group, shuffled people up a little bit, and made sure that all departmental faculty were involved in these projects. So why do I say that? Um, Because I think when a crisis hits, 
the first thing that leaders have to do is to try and push their constituents to see beyond the crisis. And coming up with projects, and the projects had two goals. One was an efficacy of patient care, and second was enhancement of dental education. So I didn't want to do a project because of COVID. I wanted to do a project that would become a permanent fixture in whatever we do going forward, maybe to a different level or a different mix of what we've always done. So I think it brought our team together. So you asked me, how did we manage COVID? One was staying together. Two was tapping into every resource that I had available to me, partnership with other clinicians, partnership with laboratory partners, partnership with other components of the university, uh, learning from them. We created a team across the university of all department chairs so that I would learn from the Department of History or other places. This is why academia matters to be in an institution, so to speak. I think our team became really strong That was not our plan to begin with. I think we began to see a common goal. We didn't know what to expect. No one did. I remember having conversations with some colleagues and partners in Arizona. And at the time, Arizona wasn't hit at all. And I was saying, you know, New York is so bad and this is what's happening. And they almost couldn't believe that this wave will get to their state also. So we did it with pulling everybody together for a common goal. And the common goal had something that everybody embraced. So it wasn't something to sell to my constituents. And we managed the dental education quite well, actually, given the crisis that we had where they couldn't see patients. I hope that helps. Oh, that helps a ton. I love the unity piece and you talking about uniting and coming together because People were resilient and were unstoppable when we're together and we're moving towards one common goal. That's really, really powerful. And also talking about tapping into your resources within the university and external linking arms, moving forward together. What did you consider to be one of the biggest challenges or for doctors actually now as challenges in moving forward? Well, I would tell you what was the challenge then. And then I would say, what is the challenge now? I think the challenge then was not knowing what's going to happen. We're a group of control freaks and, (laughs) you know, type A personality (laughs) prosthodontists that want to plan everything and know what's going on and, and not knowing from day to day when we were going to be back, how we were going to be back, how was going to be the conditions. And it was something unimaginable. And, you know, we didn't have a template to follow or an example. And, you know, we had some information because, for example, NYU is a global, has global sites. We have a site in Shanghai. So we tapped into some of their information and how they dealt with the crisis in, in, in the classroom. But then, of course, they don't have the dental school. So we had different type of things. So I would say in the initial phase was not knowing. Not knowing was definitely the initial phase. Right now, I think, first of all, I don't see it as as a major challenge now because people are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, People are, are beginning, even though we're in the midst of a second wave or what some people consider we never finish the first wave, continuation of the same thing, but an optic all over the country in COVID. 
But I do think that there is there is hope. I think that yes, dental dentistry was affected, dental education was affected, but I don't think their effect is going to stay as a permanent mark, at least sure. not in any permanent way. Uh, patients are still going to be there. Patients are still going to need oral care. So the very basic element mm-hmm. has not changed. It's not like something revolutionized and there's no need for dentistry anymore. If anything, it is pushing us to think of dentistry and dental education in a slightly different way. And the one item that comes to my mind is efficiency. Efficiency is now really key in that what can we do so that without compromising the outcome, we can do it faster. And that's my current goal. Why? Because every time a patient comes in, there is a risk. Every time they take public transportation, there is a risk. Every time there's a high aerosol producing procedure, there's a risk. So what do we do to mitigate other than other things that everyone knows, PPE and protections and and diligence and and COVID testing. The other thing we can do is eliminate one appointment. There's been lots of talks about that. So my goal is to come up with things that in no way impact the, the quality because we can do it faster and worse. But our idea is to do it better and faster or equivalent and faster, or at least be conscious of are there steps that we can take to make the workflow more efficient for the patient, the patient experience more pleasant. And I think those elements are things that are going to stay with us post-COVID. The disease is going to be managed. You know, you have to remember dentistry was in the middle of it with HIV in 1980s. So we know how to deal with it, except that that was a bloodborne pathogen at a time that most dentists did not wear gloves. You know, people forget that. And there was a lot of social stigma associated with that that is not associated with COVID. So is COVID more prevalent? Yes. Was it a scarier time then than now? I believe it was a scarier time then than now. But that's just one person's opinion. But I think we've managed it. There has not been an outbreak based on dentistry uh, that no one knows of. So I think the community is being very safe. There's not been an outbreak related to any dental laboratory. So that's fantastic. So the patients want to know safety and the safety is there. And they see us as operating in a safe manner those things are not going to change. We're not going to go, I doubt that we're going to go back to some other mechanism. So I think we're, those things are going to stay. We might modify it a little bit, you know, maybe the equipment gets a little bit refined and some of the mitigations efforts that we have, they might become a little bit more technologically um, engineering wise better, but we're not going to go back to that. But I I see a good forecast for dentistry. I definitely don't see a grim forecast for dentistry because Mm -hmm. nothing, you know, the disease is unchanged. We're we're still going to be pretty active, pretty productive, but we need to become more efficient. Do you feel becoming more digital in our industry post-COVID and having that be part of the rebound? 
Definitely. Not just because it's technology, because it's going to play into the efficacy and it's going to play into management of infection. So anything that is, the, the less impressions we have, the less the impressions have to be physically transported, the less they have to be handled, it's all going to play into the efficacy of care and also additional efforts to combat sort of spread of a potential infection. We have really good infection control protocols in place already so that it is not being that. But why not reduce? Why not reduce the handling elements? Why not reduce anything that would help that? I also think that it's about the right time for everybody to embrace digital technology because digital technology went through its own evolution and revolution in that there were times that things weren't as accurate. They weren't as easy. Uh, the images were too big. They were platforms that were closed in communication with other platforms. These were bottlenecks that, and hurdles that the industry has resolved. The industry that creates the technology based on the customer feedback, based on everybody at the end wanting an efficiency and an accuracy model. So I do think that it's time that we go into the digital or embrace it more. And we certainly have. We did some cool stuff. You know, in the second year <laughs> yes. of dental school, if there are any dentists listening, they would understand. And if there are any dental technologists, they would understand the rationale. We teach students how to wax up dentures. When we went into COVID, we actually began teaching it digitally. Our students were doing a digital setup and not an analog setup. Do I think there's an element of manual dexterity skill lost in manipulating wax? Maybe. But do I think that the wax setup is going to stay forever? Absolutely not. So, so the transition has happened. It forced us to get into that transition a little faster. Uh, I'm actually very proud of the team that it was one of the projects that we had that I explained at the outset that we set out. You know, we started sort of April and the project was completed in June and delivered to students that started their second year of dental school in July. That's an unparalleled timeline Very in, academia, right. in academia <laughs> to deliver. We did a pilot with a group that had experienced both. We trained faculty in doing it and created the platform and published a paper explaining it to other colleagues that want to do the same thing or want to use our platform for their teaching. So I think there were certain things that were really slowed down and there were certain things that were accelerated. And some of the digital things were accelerated. But, you know, it all depends on people's comfort level and their prior knowledge as to whether they can adapt to technology or not. I think what is going to happen invariably in the next year, in the next 12 months, a lot of people are going to reevaluate their practices, their, the dental education, if they're in dental education, and they're going to go, should we do it the way we always did it or not? Why? Because the world was shaken by its feet. It forced us to evaluate 
everything. It forced us to evaluate our family units. It forced us to evaluate the technology that we sit behind. It forced us to evaluate how we communicate, how we can tap into our resources. So it is going to continue to force us in the next 12 months. And then some people are going to truly take this as an advantage and push the industry forward. So with DSG, one of the concepts that we've talked about is creating an ecosystem. And the ecosystem is having dental students, clinicians, full-fledged faculty and specialists, and dental technology students and dental technology MDTs and CDTs all in the same location to work together. There were many years this was not possible for the mainstream dentists, okay? There's some clinicians that have that in their practices, but it is not a commonplace. But truly, this is the way to educate both professions. I have no doubt about it because the dentists have to know how to communicate with the laboratory technologists and the laboratory technologists have to know what are the limitations of the dentists and how they can enhance their world and how they can work together. And for so many years, we've been working so far away from each other, physically so far away from each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one of the things that we will be experimenting with. I am very optimistic that because it's a common vision, it will go forward and it will benefit generations of people that are going to be trained. And I won't Mm. be surprised if this becomes a new model of education for both professions, uh, for both professions. And, um, you know, a typical dentist will write something. And when the case comes back, they blame the technician. Those days are gone. They're gone. It's a true partnership. I mean, that's really what we value at DSG is, is having a true partnership with the clinicians. Our, all of our end goal is for that patient and providing the best dental health care that we can for those patients. And we can't do it if we're working in silos. So I love this model. I believe that too. I actually started talking about this model about three years ago mm. and uh, started talking because as, as dental technology schools started to close down one after another in the United States, I started thinking, well, it's not exactly as though we've lost the interest or that we've lost the need. It is just shifted. And so we have to figure out ways of shifting it back into gear. I think this is going to be a model to try. It has to be done at a large scale because proofs of concept, when they're done at a large scale, everybody will adapt them. If it's done at a small scale, people will go, well, it only worked because this was a small school. So I'm proud to say, you know, we will make it work. It's Mm. not a matter of if it works. It's a matter of we'll go in the direction, refine the methodology, figure Mm -hmm. out what is the best way to make it an optimal mechanism. I envision that, you know, we have a room full. If we were in person, I would take the camera into the clinic and show you what, of course, I can disclose patient images, but the audience can imagine cubicle after cubicle after cubicle of 40, 50 units of chairs Mm -hmm. sitting in one area. I imagine that every 30 units of chairs will have a digital design studio manned by a really gifted technician who understands what are the clinical needs. 
so that as students are doing their scans, it'll go into a queue, they will look at it, they'll say, yes, it's good, in, together with the clinical faculty, and sit down with me, let's do a design so that you can understand how your preparation can be better. Mm -hmm. This is dental education. It's not laboratory technology education. <laughs> or for the student to explain to the laboratory technologist, listen, this patient has a history of fracturing this, that, and the other, because they also don't experience clinical end of things. So right. this is to enhance both ends. It's a different model. I am mm -hmm. certain that with the right people, right environment, and the will that is needed to make it go, it will become a national, possibly an international model. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see where dentistry is going. And I think the patients are going to be impressed. They're going to go, yes. oh my God, I'm seeing the production, <laughs> right? They never right. see the production. They're going to go, oh my God, this is how it's done. How cool is that? So those are things that are going to stay post-COVID. You had also asked a question about how do I think that certain practices are going to be affected. Mm -hmm. As I said, I don't think practices are going to be affected so much, but there may be a little bit less emphasis on urban practices. Mm -hmm. So New York City is known to have some of the best dentists in the country, but I know that COVID hit hard. Um, obviously, reputable dentists will always have patients, but there has been a migration of patients that would ordinarily come to the city to mm. work in the city to be seen by the top clinician in the city. And I'm only using New York City as an example. I'm sure it applies to many urban areas. Sure. And now the demand is going to be no, 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 no. But I live outside of the city and I'm not coming in as much. And it's kind of convenient that I don't have to have the hassle of an urban environment for the practice. And so where do I go? I think this shift is going to require that suburban areas increase the number of dentists within mm -hmm. the suburbia and their quality of care to match the urban areas. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that the quality of care didn't match, but we know that cities are more demanding, more type A individuals that are focused on every era that can possibly exist in a restoration. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I think it is going to demand more suburban areas and more highest end dentistry across the country. Doesn't matter where you live. Therefore, the network of laboratory technologists having really high quality control that can meet the demands of both urban and suburban areas is going to become key. I see that to be true. It's already starting. And I've heard other clinicians talk about that. As you're looking into the future and you're seeing what opportunities, and you just shared one, what other opportunities would you suggest or maybe forecast seeing that doctors in both schools as well as private practice could take hold of? I think networks of specialists mm. is one, because if people move into the suburban areas, they may not have a multidisciplinary access. So I would imagine that if they are not in one physical location, that they will have Zoom meetings a prosthodontist, a periodontist, an oral surgeon, 
and orthodontist, whatever the case might entail, so that they would frequently add to the multidisciplinary care of their patient. What does this do? Behind the scene planning, what does it do? It speaks once again to patient care efficacy. The patient doesn't have to go from one office to another office, to a third and a fourth office to get the information. So a lot of things can happen a little bit in the background. Why? Because all the information that we want from a patient can now be accessed digitally through their chart, x-rays, CBCT, digital planning, models, scans. So you can have a virtual everything that you want for your planning. I assume that there are going to be lots of creations of pockets of individuals that are kind of come together. And in that mix, there are going to be laboratory technologists too. If this is what we want to do, is this possible? Yes or no? Depending on the complexity of care and depending on the discipline needed. So I think that's going to be um, one of them. The other ones, I think I talked about the changes in the dental education, the embracing right. of, of technology, the ecosystem, yes. or some of the other things. But for a clinician working outside, I think this is, and I'm going to plead to my colleagues that might be listening in different disciplines, start creating your teams. Mm-hmm. Start, start having the teams that you typically refer to. Every prosthodontist has a periodontist, an oral surgeon, an orthodontist that they refer to, or an endodontist that they refer to all the time. Start structuring it in a mechanism that depending on your patient base, you have a joint meeting together to discuss cases. This is where it's going to take our profession. Now, it's not a surprise that this is happening in medicine. It's happening in medicine. So, and I think it's going to happen even more so. So if somebody has a cancer diagnosis, somehow the surgeon, the chemotherapy center, and the radiation center have to communicate with each other. And the person that manages all of that is called the patient care coordinator, right? So this is not a new model. I'm just calling it new. It's Mm -hmm. not a new model. It's called a patient care coordinator. So one office of these multidisciplinary plans should have a patient care coordinator. And that patient care coordinator housed in one office is going to say, we're going to have this plan. We're going to come up with a joint plan for a patient. And and obviously I'm not talking about simple treatments, but I'm talking about slightly more complex treatments that do require multiple disciplines. I think we are going to learn from our colleagues because it's different when I send a patient to a periodontist versus when I talk to the periodontist about the patient together, looking at the same information. I'm going to see it from their perspective. So I think this whole network, this ecosystem that I talked about happening in dental schools, it is going to happen outside of dental schools. This is going to be an important model and think about the efficacy of patient care. It's going to raise the standard of care and make everybody go to the next level together, which is very exciting. All learning together, communicating together, doctors and specialists that are listening will really take that to heart and implement it today. Let's do it. What final thoughts might you have? My final thoughts are be positive. Uh, We are in a pandemic, so it's really tough not to think about it. Things, Things might become a little bit worse before they become better. 
but our profession is here to stay. Our patients are here to stay. We can, this is a time for us to take the torch and really show that we are first and foremost about patients and about patient safety and about and oral health is part of total care. And anything yes. that we can do, we should do. I would also say that there are scholars that may be listening. We should also observe trends that are happening post-COVID, whether it's multiple fractures of teeth, multiple fractures of restorations, whether it's dry mouth or, or facial breakouts because of masks or whatever. That sort of collective thought needs to make it in the literature from us. We, we shouldn't wait for our medical colleagues to publish those. Um, that is our territory and we have to own it. If we consolidate the data, we're going to see how to improve it. And we're going to learn some stuff from it, which is going to be really, really critical. My final thoughts are to be positive. I love to leave it there. It's great. Thank Where? you very much, Heidi. You're welcome. You're welcome. Where can our listeners connect with you or NYU? I think the best way to reach me is by email because I am in two or three different geographical buildings. And, and if I'm in meetings, I won't be able to answer my cell phone, but it would be by email. My email is easy. It is LJ, my initials, LJ14 at nyu.edu. And the number one four is not because I was born in 1914. It's it's because everybody <laughs> says, what does the 14 stands for? Because I'm the 14th individual at NYU with an LJ initial. It, it, there is no more to it. So <laughs> LJ14 at nyu.edu. And I usually get my to my emails pretty rapidly. And I'm happy to answer anybody's uh, questions, concerns, comments, or controversies that I might have presented. Thank you. I think our listeners are going to enjoy this as much as I did. Thank you very much, Heidi. I really want to thank you and your whole team for the opportunity to be with you guys. Thank you for listening. We invite you to subscribe to DSG Connect on iTunes or Spotify. Take a minute to refer a friend or colleague and help us spotlight this podcast by leaving us a review. In between episodes, stay connected with us. Have a topic in mind? Send your suggestions to podcast at dentalservices.net. Also, did you know we have webinars? Check them out at dentalservices.net slash edu. We believe we're stronger together. Until next time, enjoy your day.